what will human beings look at? And it has, it's been independently verified by MIT as having an accuracy just below 99%. So it replicates human vision, oh which gosh. is quite astonishing. And the other thing is it does it in minutes. So you can upload a, a video or a static image and the AI will give you saliency video back and we can find out areas of interest. We can find out things like legibility of text, reading time of text, word familiarity of text. We can look at visual complexity. Welcome to the Behaviour Change Marketing Bootcamp podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Dale, with over 20 years experience delivering behaviour change marketing across NHS, public health, local government, central government. I work directly on some of the biggest campaigns such as Change for Life, as well as working on much more focused campaigns with some of our most vulnerable members of our communities. I know how hard it is to take the theory and the science and apply it frontline whilst delivering under such pressure with such huge expectations. This podcast is dedicated to unpacking the wonderful world of behavioral science, the wonderful world of social marketing and design thinking, and any other clever stuff that helps us communicate change, influence behavior, and ultimately increase our impact. Sound good? Let's dive in. So hello, I'd like to welcome to the podcast, Phil Barden. Phil is the author of Decoded, the science behind why we buy. And he's also a fellow of the Marketing Society. Now, Phil has worked with many clients and agencies in the application of decision science, but he met it and fell in love with it when he was working for T-Mobile's brand positioning. And they used decision science, which led to the Liverpool Street flash mob dance ad, which actually increased T-Mobile sales by 49%. So he experienced it, saw how amazing it was, and then jumped ship and went into um, behavioral science. And just say he has extensive experience across some of the biggest boys out there, Unilever, Diageo, and I've just said T-Mobile. And Phil spends his time running Decode, which is the behavioral agency he worked with. And now he leads the UK consultancy. And just say he does this stuff. This is what he does all day, every day with brands out there that are killing it. So thank you so much, Phil, for not only writing the book, but coming on the podcast to help us understand a little bit more about how we can use it in our marketing. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. No, thank you for coming on. And just so we can all get to know you a little bit, could you please share one thing that no one knows about you? Only one? Well, there's, there's too <laughs> many to choose. Uh, okay, I think, I think I would choose the time when I ate... Princess Diana's dessert. How how about that? Oh my gosh, you have to explain a bit more. <laughs> yes. So I was it was when I was working at Unilever, I was brand manager on OXO, and OXO sponsored Bernardo's Champion Children of the Year Awards. And Princess Diana was patron of Bernardo's. So she came along to a dinner for the awards ceremony, and I was fortunate enough to be placed sitting next to her and spent um, an absolutely wonderful time, a beautiful and wonderful lady. And we got to dessert and she actually leant over and whispered to me, I'm not going to eat this. Would you like it? Uh, And I I said, I didn't know what the the protocol was, you know, with royalty, (laughs) but I just said, yes, okay. (laughs) So she picked her plate up and 
spooned the dessert onto mine. And so I ate Princess Diana's dessert. Oh, I thought you could say you stole it for a moment. <laughs> you accidentally nicked the dessert. Oh, that's amazing. I mean, you always say yes to seconds, really, don't you? In, well, and who could refuse royalty? Yeah, exactly. Yes. Oh, that's amazing. Has any other dessert ever tasted as good? None, none, none. before or since. <laughs> Fantastic. Oh, well, thank you, Phil. So if we move into a little bit about the book Decoded, can you please share with us how did the book come about? Because it was first published in 2013. So you were there at the beginning. You've been doing this for a while and then it was republished again this year. So could you take us back to sort of how, you know, you got the idea and what it was like then? Because I think you were definitely ahead of the curve. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And it was a lonely place. So I, having lived through the experience at T-Mobile, and worked with behavioural scientists and seen the commercial impact. And that, that, as you said in the introduction, is what was the catalyst for me actually switching careers and, and leaving a client-side career after 25 years to um, set up on my own with no clients. Wow. And yeah, it was, a, it was a lonely place to be. But I was fueled by the evangelism of, of seeing this stuff work in, in practice and the, the realisation that the essence of marketing is behavior change, right? We always want people to buy our brand, switch to our brand, buy more of our brand, talk about our brand, share videos, share stuff, whatever it might be. It's about human behavior. And the fact that these guys I'd been working with who had spent their careers in science and academia, the fact that they knew much more about human behavior, how advertising works and gets processed in the brain, why we choose and use certain brands. They knew more than the commercial world. And that was a real eye-opener to me. And so when I set up the business in the UK, since it was originally founded by these guys in Germany, I was thinking, how can I bring this message to a wider audience? Because my first experience of knocking on doors with former colleagues like at Unilever Everybody gave me an audience because they knew me yeah. and they realized I was, I was credible. But when I talked to them about behavioral science and some of the implications it had, they would sit quite literally stunned like rabbits caught in the headlights of cars and say, wow, this is, this is amazing, but it's a bit too difficult right now. Could yeah. you, you know, pop back and see us later sort of thing? And I was frustrated by that because... I thought, why don't you share my enthusiasm? Why do you not believe and, and suddenly want to start doing things differently? And of course, I realized that they were experiencing what I now know is called the Semmelweis reflex, which is the propensity oh. to reject new information if it contradicts or challenges our existing mental models. And that's why we default to the status quo, because change is inherently risky. So my pleas, my presentations, my exhortations all fell on interested, but actually quite deaf ears. And the book was a way to kind of overcome that and say, look, I've been in your shoes. I've, I've been a brand manager. I've grown up in marketing. I know what you do, but there's this other stuff and I want to share it with you. So it was my way of saying, let me write something in layman's terms, in terms that I would understand because I haven't got a PhD in neuroscience, yeah. but I know enough about it. And my colleagues obviously know way more than I ever will about it. It's a way to package that up and say, look, here are some of the key principles, how they apply to 
marketing, whether you're B2B or B2C, whether you're marketing a physical product or a, or a service, doesn't really matter. There, of course, there are nuances and differences, but the fundamentals of how the brain works is the same. And you should understand this because it will open a whole new world to you. It will explain hitherto unexplainable problems, conundrums, reasons why you tested an ad and it, it flew through research and then failed in the market or vice versa, why new products were past research and then fail, and many other aspects as well. So it was really my way of saying, look, there, here's some stuff. It's really interesting and it's fundamental to marketing. And hopefully it's written in terms that everyone can can access. And also it gives people a lot of prompts and questions throughout the book to start thinking a bit differently and apply this new lens, if you like, this new view of the of the world to their own business. Yeah, no, thank you, Phil, because it really does do that. So I've got a copy in front of me and I know no one can see, but it is full of post-it notes. It is so relevant to every marketer out there. And, you know, as you're talking, Phil, you're you're from a commercial background, but I just want to really highlight that this learning is applicable across all marketing industries. So, you know, if you're not for profit or your public sector, the need to understand the human behavior is absolutely key. And so it's completely 100% relevant. And your book, there's so much information in there. It is jam-packed with case studies. But not just behavioral science case studies, it's marketing using behavioral science case studies. So there's so much value in this book. And as you say, it almost takes you through the campaign development cycle for me. You know, there's literally advice and tips and things to think about at every stage. But like you say, helps you think differently. And there's lots of prompts and questions in there to help people get started. So yeah, your book definitely achieved its goal. And it's also a clever title as well, isn't it? Because Decoding, Decode is the name of your consultancy. And then the book is called Decoded. So I just in case we didn't make that clear, if you want to check out Phil, his consultancy is called Decode. So Phil, one of the key things in the book that I absolutely loved was about how you linked goals and motivations to the value proposition. Could you please just expand on why it's important to understand goals and motivations and how they do feed into a value proposition for the listeners? And could you start with just explaining what a value proposition is? Because I honestly think that that terminology's fallen out of everyday marketing chat now not that it should have i'm old school i think it's so important but if you could yeah. start with explaining the value proposition and the goals and motivations because it's definitely this missing link we're really good sometimes at talking to people engaging going deep on goals and motivations but we don't quite know how to apply that into a marketing strategy and actually, it's kind of just stays as a nice engagement piece almost, but it is that application. So for me, what you've done is really solved that problem. So yes, if you could please expand on that. Sure, I'd love to. I mean, I think of all the stuff that I've learned from my scientific and academic colleagues, the whole thing about goals is probably the most fundamental and it's the bit I wish I'd learned 25 years ago when I started out oh, client side oh, because okay. it is the essence of behavior so there is a wide consensus and agreement across different fields of academic and scientific study that human behavior is goal oriented and motivation 
is goal-oriented. And what that means is basically that we we will do things, we will buy things, and we will consume things that help us meet our goals. Now, goals themselves are a mixture of uh, of different levels, let's call it. You have the features and characteristics and occasions on which a goal is is relevant. And, and the features and characteristics are the ways in which a product or a service helps us meet our, our goals. So that would be things like the ingredients in a in a product, food product or chemicals, let's say, in a in a detergent, but it would also be the characteristics of a service product. So you have the way in which the product or service helps us meet our goals and the occasions on which the goal becomes relevant. So that's one component. The next component are what we call functional goals. And these are explicit reasons why people buy a category. So if I'm buying a drink, it's normally to do with refreshment or hydration. That's a functional goal or you know, with cars, it would be transportation. With telecoms, it could be broadband con- connectivity. Mm-hmm. And they are hugely important because if you don't deliver at this level, you won't have a business, basically. Okay. You have to yeah. serve these functional goals. The other characteristic of these is that people can tell us why they buy categories. And, and it's, it's quite obvious. You can, either, you can either ask your customers or normally Businesses have prior knowledge of this through prior research. And then there's another level. So you, at the bottom, you've got the features and the characteristics and the occasions. Then you've got the functional goals. But then there's another level of goals. And these are more implicit. They are a mixture of social, emotional, and psychological goals. And they have to do with our sense of self-identity, our own yeah. sense of, of purpose, how our social needs, how we fit in to the world. And these these work below the level of conscious awareness. So they're implicit and humans don't have introspective access to them. But science and academia have studied them for many years. They have defined a universal and complete set of motivations at this level. So it's relatively straightforward for businesses to, to work with these. It's the combination of those three levels that create a value proposition. And the way to link the levels is is just using a very simple construct of the two words, so that. And to give you an example, you could have a detergent that has a, a chemical that is called an optical brightener that actually makes whites look whiter. So you'd have the optical brightener so that I deliver a functional goal of perfectly clean laundry every time, so that I get a sense of perfection and relief. Okay. And that, so that's a more psychological level. So that we call a value chain, the, the so that construct links the three levels. And that, that overall thing is a value proposition. And okay. the value proposition changes for each brand. And that explains why we choose and use different brands. Because otherwise, if all brands had the same value proposition, we'd all by the same brands, you know, we wear the same watches, drive the same cars, wear the same clothes, etc. But of course, we don't because we have learned over many years of received communications, but also personal experience. We've learned that brands have greater or lesser instrumentality in helping us achieve our goals, and we can measure that strength of instrumentality in in research. And that's what we do as a a business. We measure the association 
between categories and goals and between brands and goals. And that explains and quantifies things like relevance. It explains and quantifies things like distinctiveness. And it explains brand share, actually. And it also tells, it's also very informative because it helps people understand where they are deficient in some associations. And this was, this approach was exactly what Decode did with me when I was their client at T-Mobile. So we measured the telecoms category. We measured the brands within the category. We derived a set of goals that we wanted to associate with T-Mobile. And that created the value proposition. And that was the origin then of the creative brief that came up with the flash mob idea that you mentioned at the beginning, which was all about life is for sharing and creating memorable moments to share. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So is that why it can elevate the creativity to the next level? Because you've got such clear focus. It's almost in public health, we call it the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So, you know, like there's these core fundamental needs that people have. And I think they it translates quite nicely to these intrinsic goals that, sorry, the higher ones. But in the book, is there a list of these goals, Phil, that we could sort of access? I think I recall seeing one. Is that your decode shape? Is that the... Yeah, it's um, the, what we call the, the goal model or reward model. Yes. Um, yeah. I've, I've listed some of them. I haven't listed all because they're our intellectual property and that's what we use in our, oh, in our commercial yes. work. But yes. the kind of the genesis of the model and the, the meaning of each of the spaces in the model is, is described in the book for sure. And it's really useful because you can you can apply the model to understand categories and brands. And uh, and that's what we do in, in our research and consultancy work. And it's useful to, you can see how and why brands are positioned differently, how and why advertising works or doesn't work, yeah. so which goals are activated by communications. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So to get started, I definitely say reference, have a look in the book, but of course the expertise and to take it to the next level comes from you in-house. And so just building on that expertise, what is happening at Decode? Because there's some exciting AI developments. Um, So again, it seems like you're very much ahead of the curve. Please could you share with us what you're doing with AI and behavioral science and decoding? Sure. I mean, AI is sort of the the phrase du jour right now. Everyone, yes. the, the industry is awash with discussions about chat GPT and mid-journey and stable diffusion and, and the things like that. We've been working away in the background and set up a sister company two years ago. We're fortunate in that one of our co-founders is an incredibly capable and intelligent guy. He did a double PhD at Caltech, the the number one institution worldwide. One PhD was in neuroscience and the other PhD was in understanding intelligence. And he was teaching robots to learn 20 years ago. So he's been waiting for the technical, the computing capability to catch up with his vision, which is to build AI capabilities that are based on behavioral science principles, and also trained with human data. So it's okay. machine learning. So we've, you know, we've trained the, the AI with things like 15,000 hours of human eye tracking video. So the AI has learned when it's presented with a video or a static image, what will human beings look at? And it has, it's been independently verified by MIT as having an accuracy just below 99% 
So it replicates human vision, oh which gosh. is quite astonishing. And the other thing is it does it in minutes. So you can upload a, a video or a static image and the AI will give you saliency video back and we can find out areas of interest. We can find out things like legibility of text, reading time of text, word familiarity of text. We can look at visual complexity. We've also trained it with things like human memory tests. So it will give a, a metric on memorability of visuals and text. We've trained it with human response to images and text. So if I if I showed you an image of a sunflower, for example, you would tell me it's a sunflower, it's yellow, it has seeds, it, we make oil from the seeds. But you would also get into other semantic concepts such as the sun and outdoors and nature and sunshine, vitality, yeah. optimism, positivity. So think all of those sort of associations that human beings learn We've trained the AI with 450 million visuals and the human responses. So if we show the AI an image of a sunflower, it will report back what humans report back. And that's incredibly valuable when you show the AI a video or a static image. It will tell you what is encoded in that image and, and text as well. So coming back to motivations, we've trained it with those as well. So it will tell you what motivations are encoded on top of that. It will tell mm. you things like, is, is the intended message conveyed? Is branding conveyed? What brand values are conveyed? So it, it's astonishing. And the fact it does it in, in minutes and very, very cost-effectively means that suddenly you get this creative effectiveness measure at scale, fast, cheap, and it's enabling clients to test stuff they would never have tested before to make sure that things that go out the door are optimized because it, you know, everyone's under pressure, right? You've, you've yeah. got budgetary pressure. You've got time pressure. Everyone's tasked with doing more for less. Yeah. And, uh, and then with, especially with digital content, it's just this, this velocity of, of production. And all that happens currently is stuff goes out and maybe people give an opinion or yes. give a subjective view. And that's not optimal. And when you look at studies from people like Nielsen and Kantar, they've done econometric modeling on the components of the effectiveness of communication. So the impact of communications on sales and profitability. And when you look at components like the brand involved, the reach, the targeting, the proposition, and the creative, the creative emerges as the single biggest driver of sales and profitability somewhere yeah. between 47 and 50%, the single biggest driver. So it's the low-hanging fruit. And we've got content going out on a daily basis that is not optimized at all, and it's not tested because of time and budget pressure. So this is a real way to say, look, we've, we've kind of built a digital version of the brain. We've mirrored all of the neural processes like attention, memorability, complexity, emotional response, motivation encoding, etc cetera, etc cetera. we've wow. taught a machine and we've mirrored the principles so you can now put material through this very quickly and cost effectively and uh, and find out if it's going to if it's optimized or not and if not what to do about it i'm just a bit overwhelmed this is just so incredible because as you say we talk about ai all the time there's a lot of like fear based conversations around it but this is a real problem that you're solving in marketing departments. So 
So often we do a lot of the scoping and the engagement and the research up front and then the creative gets done. Yeah. But there's no time or budget to then go back out. And the decision on the creative approach is actually does fall down to be opinion based. Yes. Which in a way undermines the whole sort of journey to that point of working and understanding the behavior. So to be able I mean, uh, I very rarely do we have the money to go back out and test. And we may do A-B testing when the creative's alive, but it's definitely a big problem here that you're solving because yeah. to be able to just sense check it and just test it in a quick, fast way before running with it would take a lot of stress out of a lot of people yeah. every day. Absolutely. Um, because we are human and we are subject to the fact that we're always probably running late on our project over budget and the massive expectations on communications to just solve all the problems. But also, like you mentioned, it is the scale of the content that is getting pushed out without serious testing at all. And it's all retrospective testing. It's data, it's analytics, it's all, you know, it's out there. And we've exactly. all been there, you know, if social content goes wrong, we've all, you know, have that fear sometimes with the best, sometimes it can go wrong. Mm. You know, there's major brand mistakes out there. So to be able to just do that quickly at scale at that point, so solving a real problem, it's amazing. I mean, how would anyone even start that would they just get in touch with you how does yeah. it work yeah just get in in touch with me and we can set up a, a session to introduce you to it just like that i mean some of the it's interesting you mentioned a b testing because a b testing doesn't optimize all it tells you is was one version better than the other but they yeah. still both of them might be rubbish still but one's <laughs> a bit less rubbish than the other it's not optimized so yeah, and as you right. say stuff goes out the door and then you've spent the money yeah. So I think Nielsen estimated something like 70% of marketing assets go out the door untested. Wow. And, and that's, that's billions and billions of dollars, euros, pounds, whatever, potentially wasted. We're working with some of the world's biggest companies. They have all been through proofs of concept and validated this. For, of, of course I have. I'd, have you know, I'd do the same if, if I was client side. And companies like Henkel, have gone from testing none of their e-commerce assets to now testing 100% of their e-commerce assets. And they've wow. validated the improvements that have, that have come from it. The tools are now being used by more than 300 brands in more than 25 countries. So it's, it's really wow. gaining traction. And I think, you know, if, if 10, 15 years ago, behavioral science and decision science and the components of that were emerging as you said you know this is early yeah. days when i set decode up now i think we're on the cusp of something even more exciting the application of behavioral science to with ai the other thing we found talking with clients is because as, as you say sometimes people are fearful it's a black box it has the word artificial yes. will it replace my job yes. all of these concerns and the way we talk about it is it's like having a virtual customer or consumer next to you. It actually augments your intelligence. Oh, yeah. It's not artificial because it's been trained with human data. You know, it's like if you went out and recruited 15,000 people and um, got them to wear eye tracking glasses for an hour each, 
Yes. Well, guess yeah. what? We've done that. <laughs> so it is, it's not the artificial at all. time and money you can save. Exactly. And to be honest, when you just said that, the word persona jumped into my head because we always say, look, you've got to get the person, your virtual person next to you for all of your decision making across. So keep your audience in mind. Keep your audience front and centre. Does this work for your audience? Are you meeting your audience's goals? And one technique we talk about is personas. It's almost like having a, a persona, a virtual persona that, that does so much more because it actually can give you feedback, heat maps, tell yeah. you if your brand values are aligned. Are you meeting yeah. their goal or have you wandered off the path? Because the reality is that pressure can mean we do wander off the path. So it's almost like you've got the person. And if you're in healthcare comms, I do a lot of healthcare. You've almost got the patient always alongside every journey. Yeah. But without the expense of constantly pulling on the same people or the same groups and, you know, the time and money. Exactly. Um, and, it's not, and it's not replacing that at all because this is a point in time, isn't it? It's not replacing that upfront engagement work. It's actually solving a real problem about, you know, the optimising the creative before it yeah, spends on it. absolutely. What we found most often in all our consulting work over the last 15 years is what we call the implementation gap, that somehow a gap opens up between strategy and execution. And it's quite unwitting. It's not, yes. Of course, it's not deliberate, <laughs> but it just happens yeah. that you, you spend a lot of time and effort and money creating a brand position and getting your strategy right. And then when it comes to executing that and delivering it across touch points, things can go off track. And so this is a really good way of making sure they stay on track without, as you say, having to go to the time and expense of consumer testing every yeah, time for every, every time. asset. Yeah. And also, as you said that, that gap, I think, rests on the shoulders of the marketing and the comms person and it causes a lot of stress. Whereas this closes the gap and also keeps your stakeholders at bay. Yeah. A lot of head of comms are constantly managing dominant characters that think it should look like this, think this yes. should happen. And you know, as soon as you do creative, everyone's got an opinion. You know, Absolutely. they never fed into the brief, but as soon as they see some nice colours in a photo, everyone piles in. Yeah. So yeah. to be able to manage them, you know, to say this is what, you know, this is what works, this is what doesn't, it's optimised with actual, you know, imagery, facts. Yeah. It's not then you know, you're actually elevating the conversation with them. You're having a professional conversation rather than being pulled down into the more opinion-based, you know, I like this, I like that. Yes, what you just said about that implementation gap is exactly what we talk about in our bootcamp training all the time. And I think that is where most of the stress in the job comes out. Mm. I think most people in-house are managing that and bridging that gap all the time. And so anything that helps, you know, bring that closer together and makes it quite real as well, doesn't it? It does. We've also found that it really helps teams develop their capabilities when it comes to executing on strategy, because having the AI there is almost like having supervised feedback. And from science and academia, yeah. we know that supervised feedback is the most efficient and effective way of human learning. So it helps teams over time get things tighter, get things better, get things more on track and close this implementation gap. Okay. Oh, this is so exciting. 
Okay, this is amazing. So you were at the cusp at the last one, the 2013, and you're definitely ahead of the curve again. <laughs> Have to wait for the world to keep catching up with you, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just so exciting. I'm really excited by it. I'm thinking of lots of projects in my past that needed you, and I'm sure um, I'm going to see how I can weave it into the future ones. Thank you so, so much for coming on. Before you leave, there's just this really cool, fun thing in your book that I think is going to be really relevant to the audience listeners here because we talk about it a lot. And it's why writing in capitals is makes it harder to read. You see so much creative in capitals. Please, can you share why, from a behavioural science perspective, this is a big no-no? Yeah, it's a, an interesting one because you're right. You see so much creative copy written in caps. And when I've talked to art directors and asked them why, they've, they've said two things. One is it looks nicer because it blocks better and it's more symmetrical than lowercase. And they're absolutely right. It does look nicer. And the other thing is they say, well, it it's, gets more impact and cut through because it's like newspaper headlines. No art director I've spoken to to date has been aware that actually writing lots of words in capitals slows down human reading time and also sorry, human reading speed, and also increases complexity of, of processing. And the reason is simple, because we learn to read words in lowercase. When we're at school, we learn words, we put them together in strings, and then we learn the word shape. So we don't have to read each individual letter. We learn that that particular shape means something. Yeah. When you put that word in capitals, you destroy the word shape. Now, there are some words that we learn in capitals where it's perfectly fine to, to write in capitals. So things like stop, now, go, win, free, things like this. We learn that word shape in capitals. Okay. But more often than not, what you see is loads of text written on a poster, on print, on digital, on pack, whatever it might be, and everything is blocked in capitals. And if you've ever tried reading that, what you find is you give up because it's just too hard. Okay. And no art director I've spoken to has been aware of this. Yeah. And we, we, we actually had one client, when I, I explained this in a workshop, and they said, they had their agency there, and they said, oh, this is a bit awkward, because we've just created a new brand world with a bespoke font, and it's all capitals. We don't have any lowercase. And then the chief marketing officer piped up, oh, now I know why all our PowerPoint presentations are so difficult to read. Oh, and it's God. because you, you look at a PowerPoint slide, everything's written in capitals. It's too much. See for yourself. Yeah. 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 And I'm thinking there's so many people, we all make our own content now. So it's just such a key bit of insight. It's a key bit of intelligence to remember, not to overuse the capitals, just stick to those common words because it makes it harder for our audience. And we're really big on accessibility. So anything that reduces accessibility, it's really important to know. Mm. So you thank you, Phil. Yeah, thank you. So final, final question. Could you please recommend one book that has changed your world or that can help people get started? Yeah, I think one that's very accessible is is Rory Sutherland's Alchemy. Oh, yes. So Rory Sutherland was was kind enough to write the foreword to my book. But I'm not bigging up his book just just, just <laughs> as a thank you. I genuinely love his book. He writes beautifully and and it's all about the the surprising ideas that just don't make sense. So it is all about behavioral science. So Rory mm -hmm. Sutherland Alchemy is is definitely one for okay. uh, bedtime reading. 
Yes, it's a beautiful gold cover, isn't it? Yeah. It's a lovely book. Okay, thank you so much. And of course, your book as well. I would highly recommend everyone to get that. And we've got our boot camp training coming up in June. And your book is the prize. We have games and prizes. So your book is the prize, this one. Thank you. (laughs) Excellent. So thank you so much for coming on, Phil. We've learned so, so much from you. Anyone that wants to get in touch with Phil, what's the best way? You can email me, phil at decodemarketing, all one word, all lowercase, of course decodemarketing.com brilliant or via linkedin you can find and me on linkedin. linkedin phil barden yeah okay so everyone say hello to phil on linkedin and thank you so much take care pleasure thank you hello so if you would like a, a spot at the behavior change marketing Bootcamp training the next one is on the 7th of june it is nearly full and it is the last one until the autumn so don't delay if you want a spot we just only have a couple left now it is at www.socialinsightmarketing.co.uk forward slash bootcamp. And of course, if you are interested in a team session, let me know. They are a lot of fun. Thanks, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. We're so delighted you joined us. And if you got any value out of this at all, or even if you just simply had a little chuckle, please do share it with anyone you think it may benefit. And please, if you do leave a review, oh my gosh, we would be forever in your debt. The algorithms on podcasts are pretty tough and reviews do make all the difference. So please do head over onto your platform and leave us one. And also, if you need to know anything about our latest training or you just want to get in touch, head over to our website, which is www.socialinsightmarketing.co.uk forward slash bootcamp.